you're listening to Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders Vigilante podcast. Well, howdy, everyone. Welcome to Ranger Gord's Podcasting Shack. Pull up a chair, the coffee's on the boil, and welcome to this, the very first edition of Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. This is, in fact, an index show dedicated to one of Comicdom's lesser-known heroic lights, but who has nonetheless captivated me as a character through most of my comic reading life. Naturally, our pilot show will review his first appearance in Action Comics 42, an anthology titled it, among other things, including a some guy named Superman, that introduced this concept of a cowboy superhero in the 42nd edition. In future episodes, I intend to follow that progress until we, well, run out of stories. And today, I also want to cover a number of points. Who is this masked man, the vigilante? Who is this podcaster? And why does he care? And why does Ranger Gord think anyone else will care? So before we get started, let's talk a little bit about the man behind the red bandana and my own secret origin with this character. Now we hear a lot about the word vigilante in comics, of course. That is pretty much the concept of what the superhero is about. Um, Let's face it, everything buddy from Superman to Batman to Spider-Man, unless they have some sort of a government sanction or some sort of contrivance that has been put together by the writer, they are basically acting within and outside the law. And there have been several characters in DC Comics with that name of the vigilante from the district attorney that uh, appeared in the new Teen Titans in the 1980s, Adrian Chase, on upwards until the point where you can turn on a show like uh, Arrow and hear the word vigilante about 17 times in every episode. Now I'm exaggerating. Now, but despite the the CW's uh, great work on uh, CGI and such, they have never figured out how to put a cowboy hat onto a guy riding a motorbike, such as the original vigilante, Greg Saunders. Now, he, of course, is that first fictional character known as the vigilante that appeared in Action Comics, published by DC Comics, first in the 1940s, right on up until 1954. He took a bit of an extended break. We started to see more of him again in the 1970s and a lot less of him ever since. But whenever he does show up, he does make a bit of a splash. And he's had some other media as well. He was one of the very first of the DC Comics characters that was adapted for live-action film, getting his own serial, Vigilante, Fighting Hero of the West, that appeared as a Saturday morning serial. Let's try that again, a Saturday morning serial. And he even beat out Superman and getting his serial by one year. He has also appeared in uh, several cartoon editions. Uh, he was most famously on the Justice League Unlimited in several episodes, voiced by both Michael Rosenbaum and by Nathan Fillion, and that's no small potatoes. He has also appeared in the Batman Brave and Bold cartoon edition, and lately on the CW's Stargirl, even though I just made fun about uh, the CW not being able to put the vigilante in, I need to correct myself right now because they, in fact, have alluded to the existence of the Vigilante in the Stargirl universe on that CW show. And we even saw him in photograph, in a photograph, and we've seen his, uh, some of his compadres, the Shining Knight and Stripesy, of course, who is a major player on that Stargirl show. 
So even though he appears um, probably since Crisis on Infinite Earths, mostly as a background character, I think he's well-beloved, and he seems to make a bit of a splash every time he uh, shows up. Now, Vigilante was created by none other than a pair of Morts. Mort Weisinger, who would go on to later fame and somewhat infamy as one of the edit the uh, longtime editors of the Superman line of comics throughout the Silver Age. And his visual presentation was created by one of the best, uh, to my mind, artists of the 1940s, Mort Meskin. And for a number of years, just to avoid confusion, um, in so much as comics didn't really worry about creator credit that so much in the published editions, we tended to see uh, the Mort Weisinger and Mort Meskin uh, productions as uh, billed as Mort Morton Jr. We'll talk a little bit, and we'll talk a lot about um, both Mr. Weisinger and Mr. Meskin in the future editions. Uh, Greg does first appear in Action Comics number 42 as Greg Sanders. There is no U in the 1940s in the Greg Sanders. Uh, later years, we start to um, hear about him as Greg Saunders. And to be perfectly honest, I don't know when that U comes in and uh, seems to be treated by DC as canon. That is now Greg Saunders with the U. Uh, for myself, unless I see it in print, it's Sanders. And uh, in uh, the Golden Age, you have this concept of heroes appearing in anthology books. Now, what I mean by anthology is DC will have several heroes, or several comics, rather, that will, their titles will have titles like Action, Detective, More Fun, All-American, Star Spangled, and it goes on and on like that. Uh, every one of these titles will have several different characters in an adventure, and they might range from 12 pages down to eight pages and sometimes even four pages. Most of Vigilante's um, appearances were either eight or ten pages. Now, in those years, you didn't see many heroes get their own eponymous titles or self-named titles. There were few and far between. Superman had his title. Batman had his title. There was All Flash, which also distinguished away from the Flash comics anthology. A Green Lantern title, Wonder Woman, and of all things, the Boy Commandos. The rest of them were all in anthologies. They were all part of their own groupings. So Vigilante's grouping was in Action Comics, which he shared um, with the cover title. And you may have heard of this gentleman, a man named Kent. And uh, Vigilante, over time, would have not so many appearances in the Golden Age with um, the estimable Kal-El, but you would see him from time to time over the years, um, not uncomfortable with appearing with Superman. Now, Vigilante himself appeared in each and every issue of Action Comics from 42 right up until number 198, dated November 1954. Now, that's a heck of an accomplishment, considering that characters as, uh, as illustrious as The Flash, Green Lantern, and Hawkman 
were all good, but gone in their titles by 1954. In fact, you didn't see Dr. Fate, the Spectre, or even the Sandman much past the end of the World War II. So that is an accomplishment, of course, for a character that, you know, I, some might call a C or a D-lister. But, of course, Vigilante was Western in theme, and comics sort of changed its variation from the superhero theme, uh, which waned after World War II, towards the end of World War II. And, of course, Vigilante was a cowboy superhero. And you started to see his stories get much more Western in scope, even though they were taking place in the contemporary time period of the late 1940s. Uh, but Vigilante spending a lot less time in the cities, and he's spending more time out in the rural areas, uh, to the point of where you see some of the towns he goes to. And I'm a historian, and uh, I have to go. Some of these towns have seemed like they have gotten trapped in the Old West, and they have never seen a car until Vigilante ri rides in on his motorbike. That's a little exaggerated, but we'll see some of that as we go along. Hopefully we get that far. Now, as I said, he's a Western-themed hero, and that's pretty interesting considering that Mort Weisinger was basically a... Jewish man born and bred in New York, but uh, Mort was a creator. He was also the creator of something called Aquaman and another character called Green Arrow and a character called Johnny Quick. So Mort, first and foremost, you know, despite his uh, somewhat controversial reputation as an editor on the Superman line, was a writer and he was a very creative man. And I like to think that maybe he had a little bit of, uh, of heart to put into the vigilante. Maybe, I don't know, maybe he watched a lot of westerns. Maybe he read a lot of Zane Grey. I don't know. The idea of Greg Saunders is that he's the grandson of a Native American fighter. Now, when you say fighter, I guess that it actually means that he fought Native Americans, not so much that he was Native American. And, of course, this is in the time of the Wild West in amongst the, uh, the Great Western Movement. And there's a few things in the story that we're going to read today that are a little bit uh, problematic in that regards. We'll talk to that as I read through the, the uh, story. And he was also the son of a sheriff in the great state of Wyoming. As a young man, he moves east to New York City, becomes a country singer of all wells, of all things. And I'm just going to abbreviate that. Not a country singer as you think of it today with your Blake Shelton's, your Garth Brooks's and such. He's more in the vein of, say, Gene Autry, Roy Rogers, Tim Holt, Hopalong Cassidy, that sort of a thing. Um, in, here in Alberta, where I live, in Alberta, Canada, our great cowboy troubadour of that time was a man by the name of Wilf Carter. And I might introduce you to Carter as we get through the, uh, the stories as I start to talk a little bit about Greg's alter ego. I'm going to spend some time on that as well later on. I think I uh, just dropped the lead here on the word troubadour. This is Greg Saunders's alter ego, his Clark Kent, his Bruce Wayne. He is known on the radio because there is no television. There is no MTV at that time as the Prairie Troubadour. And he tours quite frequently to the, the cities and the towns of America. And he gets around too. Sometimes he gets to Australia. He's been known to go to Mexico, South America. And by gosh, he even came to Edmonton at one point 
and fought with the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. He's got one of that those great revenge sort of origins that is fairly well, let's face it, based on the Batman origin. When his father is killed, he comes home and he brings justice and he apprehends the gang of bandits that uh, that had killed his father, Tom Saunders. And I guess he is inspired in some way to carry on as a crime fighter in disguise. And his disguise is amazing. This is a guy who in his identity dresses up in... Uh, well, let's say Ray Roy Rogers, you know, rhinestones and fringes and all of that sort of a thing. Now, we're used to the idea of superheroes as a costume fighter. Is Greg Sanders actually in costume? I say, and he's in his work clothes. He's in jeans. He's got a sort of a cavalry-style bib front shirt, boots, spurs. And he always seems to have a different hat than he is wearing as the, uh, as the Prairie Troubadour. Often even a different color. And, of course, he caps off this identity with a simple thing, the red bandana. Very similar to the shadow as he appeared in the covers of the pulps. And that apparently fools an awful lot of people. But this is comics. You will believe a man can fly. You will believe a man can hide his identity with a red bandana. Uh, Vigilante Lanny has a couple of sidekicks that we'll beat over the years. First is Billy Gunn, who is sort of an aging uh, Western character. Later on, he get a teenage sidekick, Stuff, the Chinatown kid. Now, unlike a lot of Asian stereotypes or stereotypes in general in comics at that time, I'm looking at you, Chop Chop and the Blackhawks. Stuff is not a stereotype. They do, uh, you know, they color him as, a, as an Asian lad, an Asian American boy. And he speaks a sort of slang, but he's not like short round in Indiana Jones. He is definitely an American kid who just happens to be descended of Asian. I think that's a very refreshing thing. And it's a very strange thing when you think about Mort Weisinger, and he's the man uh, that's doing this. We'll talk more about that when we get up to Stuff's first appearance. We're a few issues down the line where you see this. Um, his solo adventures mostly against non-powered or costume criminals. Uh, his superpowers, well, his superpowers are on the line of anything that you might see exaggerated in a movie. He was an excellent fighter, a trick shooter, sharpshooter, a uh, brilliant horseman motorc and motorcycle rider. And this is basically his mode of transportation. In later years, not until 1950, he'll get a rocket cycle as well. And this will give him advantage over adversaries. Most of his earlier adventures take place in, in New York City, but I think he does get around. We don't actually see a lot of places that are named, uh, but I believe uh, when he comes to the Chinatown to uh, where he acquires stuff as a partner, that is the New York City Chinatown. But we'll see him in California and, like I said, basically all over the continent. Of course, this is taking place in World War II as well. I've had a read-through over the last few weeks of most of the adventures, and I don't see a lot of, uh, I don't know, war-inspired villains or anything like that. Even though we, we do think of the characters of the 1940s as being you know, part of that uh, 1980s construct, the All-Star Squadron, which does tend to take on Nazis and... Uh, fascists of all sorts of stripes they always say you should judge uh, a hero by his rogues gallery 
And of course, nobody has a better one probably in, in comics than Batman. Vigilante doesn't quite have that kind of a gallery. And you have to wonder, why am I doing a podcast of a, man, of a hero whose greatest villain was a man called The Dummy? But, you know, uh, he's a professional killer, resembles a ventriloquist dummy. But you know what? We're going to find out that Dummy's a lot cooler than he sounds. Um, one villain who does appear an awful lot uh, to the point of this is probably the one thing I kind of got sick of uh, during my read-through was a villain called the Rainbow Man. And yes, he is just about as interesting as he sounds. Mr. Ostrander, can you put the Rainbow Man into the Suicide Squad, please? He also uh, encounters a character called the Rattler, and I really like the Rattler because this is probably the Vigilante's uh, he also has a v- two villains that you might mistake for other villains of the Golden Age, the Fiddler and the Shade. And these are two villains that also had been associated with the Golden Age Flash, Jay Garrick, but they're not the same characters. In fact, the Fiddler uh, p- predates uh, Jay Garrick's Fiddler by a few years. And we get other foes that called Shakes, the Underworld Poment, and a gangster called the Dictionary, so uh, we're in for some we're in for some treats. Now, Vigilante also uh, in the Golden Age was a part of a super team. Of course, we know a lot about the Justice Society as the first super team of the Golden Age, but DC had a second team that was known as the Soldiers of Victory, also known as primarily as the Seven Soldiers of Victory, and also known as the Law's Legionnaires. We're going to be covering the Seven Soldiers of Victory Adventures when we get to that point in the chronology. And it's a very, very interesting group. And they also feature into how I got into the, uh, the idea of the Vigilante as being one of my primary favorite characters in all of comics. Now, before I drop the ball on too much of uh, the Vigilante's future past 1954... I'd also like to speak about my own secret origin with the Vigilante. So who am I? Hi, I'm Ranger Gord. Pleased to meet you. You may have heard of me on such podcasts as... No, you've never heard of me on that podcast. I do manage a podcast called Radio KBPV. It's a work podcast. But likely if you're on this, listening to this because you're a comics fan, you have doubt you have ever, ever heard that podcast. If you have... Mazel tov, maybe I know you from Facebook. I do know some of the podcasting community initially through Facebook, um, mostly because I barge my way in with pithy comments and such, which uh, probably aren't always appreciated. But I have always been treated with friendship. And uh, this year, I finally made my comics podcasting debut actually on the Fire and Water Network on an episode of Treasury Cashed, where I talked with... uh, the estimable Rob Kelly about the Treasury edition that reprinted All-Star Comics. And uh, I gave some of my backstory at that point in time. Uh, I don't know if you need to hear it all over again. My true name is Gord Tolton. Um, I live in a place called Coldale, Alberta. And uh, Alberta is a province of Canada. For those of you who don't understand that Canada is not just one great big lump of a place. It has 10 provinces and three territories. I live in a rural area, not very far from the Montana border. In fact, my first few years 
were spent in a tiny town right on the border. We moved to a farm because my dad had a dream about being a uh, farmer and a rancher and uh, appeared that he needed to drag all of us along with it. Uh, one of the problems that I certainly learned, as my parents learned as I moved there when I was three years old, was I was allergic to basically everything that happened on the farm. Not so much the horses or animals, but to the grain and grasses and hay and such. Thus, in uh, summer holidays, uh, I faced a problem. I could go outside and die, or I could stay inside and read and do things. Um, I like to be outside and everything as much, but uh, if things were blooming and things were in Poland or if there was a lot of dust around, I was in a lot of trouble. I still, I'll still fight these things, but I'm not here to, uh, to take pity on myself. That led to reading an awful lot of things, um, f fiction books and nonfiction as well, and histories that led me to doing what I do today. I'm a published author and historian and a museum educator with a small museum um, called Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village in Pincher Creek, Alberta. Uh, I also, of course, loved comics. I enjoyed just about anything. If it had print on it, I would read it. I would read Gold Key TV adaptations. I would read Bugs Bunny. I would read Hanna-Barbera. But mostly, I, my jam is what I finally settled into, were the superhero titles of DC Comics. And basically, I loved the super teams. So before I get along any further, what the way I'm going to kind of introduce my, introdu my, my introduction to the vigilante, I'm going to introduce my introduction here, is I'm going to read a letter that I had. I'm going to read a, a letter because as a historian, we never throw anything away. We hoard everything and we like to recycle it from time to time. This letter was read by Shag Matthews and Rob Kelly on their podcast, one of their many, uh, Who's Who, the DC Universe. Hi, Robin Shag. Great Who's Who Volume 25 podcast. I have to write and tell you how much I appreciate not only your show, but for the great positive review for the Greg Sanders Vigilante page. Vigilante has been my favorite comics character since I was about eight years old and first learned of him during that immortal JLA-JSA team-up in Justice League of America number 100 in 1972. I have a few comments that may enlighten you as to what's going on with the Earth-1, Earth-2 vigilante divergence, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, who thankfully for us thinks about these things way more than maybe healthy. Now, of course, Earth-2 Vig is, in fact, the Seven Soldiers character, from JLA number 100 through 102, and the original character that appeared in Action Comics from 1941 to 1954, and in Leading Comics during that same era. He is only really seen again at the Crimson Avengers funeral in Infinity Inc. number 11 in 1984, retroactively in All-Star Squadron, and in Crisis on Infinite Earths number 12. He also appeared with the soldiers in Land of Magic, a story that ran in Adventure Comics 438 to 443 with the Aquaman headlining Rob. That was created that story was created from an unproduced script. Presumably that tale occurs in the late 1940s. You are correct that Roy Thomas did not link Greg Sanders with Shiera Sanders or Speed Sanders, but in fairness, he didn't use Vidge all that much and never utilized Speed Sanders at all. 
I got the sense that Roy didn't like the character, Vigilante. That's perhaps he was kind of a downer in Western comics because he'd been ripped off as a kid when his All-Star Comics subscription was replaced with All-Star Western. Uh, just jumping in to interrupt my own letter, I don't really know that Roy Thomas hated Western characters. That was just uh, a little bit of my amateur psychiatrist. Now back to the letter. Now that Vigilante has a that appeared in JLA number 78 through 79, the first satellite story, is in fact considered to be the Earth-1 vigilante. Steve Englehart also used him in flashback in JLA number 144 in retelling the League's origin of 1958, along with many other DC stars like Robot Man and Plastic Man, who also inexplicably don't belong in that period. But it does work if you consider this as Earth-1's Vidge's first chronological appearance. This vigilante had several solo appearances throughout the 1970s. A backup feature in Adventure Comics, number 417, 422, 426, and 427 in 1972 and 1973. As a co-star of Superman in World's Finest, 214 in 1972. During that brief period, when World's Finest was a multiple team-up book title with Soups as the anchor. And in the Dollar Comics era of World's Finest, number 245 to 248, that was so superbly penciled by the great Ray Mor- Gray Morrow, who I will speak of later. Why the Who's Who page makes no reference to the various vigilantes is due to the chronology of publication. By this time, we are well into the pre-crisis era, and Vig, like many Golden and Silver Age characters, is considered as being rolled into a single character for convenience which does make the history more linear, but of course creates more paradoxes, like Rob's comment about JLA 7879 indicates. But hey, isn't sorting this all out in your brain half the fun of continuity in the first place? Greg Saunders appeared later in continuity in El Diablo, Stars and Stripes, and presumably died in the Grant Morrison Seven Soldiers epic, although he supernaturally appeared in the Bulleteer episodes of Seven Soldiers, and the last time we get to see him is in, of all things, a Jimmy Olsen one-shot special around 2008. Now, we got an excellent period era vigilante, of course, in a new title, as you mentioned, Fighting Bugsy Siegel in the 1997 uh, miniseries City Lights Prairie Justice, which, by the way, is where we get the title of this podcast. Back in the letter. For the most part, other appearances such as JLA Year One and Kingdom Come He's pretty much used as background. In New 52 Suicide Squad, he was shown posed inexplicably with Jonah Hex as one of the bounty hunters that filled the cells of Belle Reeve in history. A shame he is so underutilized. Such a great character. Despite how I've structured and detailed all of his explanations, I just don't get all militant about it. Multiple Earths add nothing to a ground-level character like the Vigilante to have to keep worrying about having him span too many time and dimension anomalies. I just want a cowboy who shirts first, first, and rams his motorbike into monsters second. Now on to Grain Morrow's art. Gray was one of the few artists who could do Western clothing accoutrements right and naturally made the vigilante look like he could step out of a panel onto a dusty road in Wyoming. So many artists can't draw a Stetson or a six-gun or a Greg's cavalry shirt to save their lives. In World's Finest 247, Morrow drew an arsenal for Greg like we had never seen before or since. Hidden in his guitar case, we see a boot dagger, a wrist derringer, a sawed-off shotgun, extra revolvers, and a dirty, hairy-style Smith & Wesson 
44 Magnum, revealing an edgier side of his character that was ready for trouble. <clears throat> Sorry, back into character here. He also put great detail into the motorcycle, a Harley-Davidson Electroglide that Greg rigged with explosives into the gas tank and hit a switch and ran the, rammed the bike into things whenever he was overwhelmed. We saw him do that in the Justice League Unlimited episode against the Shaggy Man. Now back to Gray. And I'm talking about Gray Morrow's uh, who's who entry here. Shaggin had indicated that Greg's wrist seemed abnormal in the who's who entry. And he was right. As indicated, the revolvers in Vidge's holsters are reversed with the butts to the front. Quite opposite was to what you see in many westerns or the average Kid Colt style of comic. This is a military style that allowed the shooter a variety of positions. He could cross draw with the left hand pulling out of the right holster and vice versa. Or he could draw left on left as Gray shows in the picture. To do that he would have to somewhat reverse his hand as he draws in order for the weapon to come out in the right position and of course pointing in the right direction. His thumb is in that position because he is getting to ready to cock the double action trigger as his gun is removed. This drawing is great, so great because that position illustrates how much research and detail that the estimable Gray Morrow was prepared to put into his work. And I, I closed the letter, and I'll do it anyway because it kind of details into something else I want to say. Anyway, Shag and Rob, thank you so much for a great episode and so many great episodes in general. I follow along with the reviews from my originals, and it just reminds me of why I once got so much entertainment from comics. What I wanted to... Go ahead and say, um, I mentioned there how much I love Shag and Rob's show, but I'm doing this podcast right now probably because I have listened. I don't want to think of how many episodes and different podcasts and comics podcasts that I have listened to since first discovering uh, the Comic Geek Speak around 2012. Around uh, 2013, 2014, I discovered Two True Freaks, uh, came that... Uh, Fire and Water, Michael Bailey's Fortress of uh, Bailey-tude. I almost said Longitude there. The Long Box Crusade, Professor Allen's uh, Relatively Geeky podcast, and just so, so many others, uh, too, too numerous to count. So, uh, and, of course, I became uh, sort of distant. I guess I should go so far as friends as in Facebook terms, or at least acquaintances with many of these podcasters who really have, uh, you know, put up with my barbs and put up with my commentaries and such. And, uh, you know, really made me feel welcome within their realms. And, of course, I have to also say a shout-out to Mr. Chris Franklin and his uh, wonderful wife, Cindy Franklin, who have been very, very supportive of me on two levels. Uh, Chris is also a vigilante nut, shall I say. I hope you don't mind me calling you a nut. I'll say fanatic. There you go. I've, I've promoted you, Chris. Chris has even created his own Mago Custom, an 8-inch action figure of the vigilante. And, of course, uh, if you've ever seen the YouTube uh, video of Chris and Cindy's, I don't know what you call it, but the toy room, it's just amazing. And, of course, Chris had to send me a note um, knowing of my enthusiasm for Greg Saunders, uh, showing this custom vigilante and the other um, action figures that he had within this marvelous collection. And Cindy herself, in my other alter ego, yeah, my own priority troubadour alter ego, as Ranger Gord, the uh, education coordinator of the Pioneer Village in Pincher Creek, uh, Cindy 
while she also does podcasts with Chris, um, Supermates, and um, so many others, uh, including the Justice League Unlimited. So hopefully when they get there, they'll, they'll remember me and give a shout out to Vigilante when they get to those episodes. But Cindy has also uh, worked with me during, uh, we're speaking here in 2020, as she's also the educator in Cynthiana, Kentucky, with their library uh, and some of their, their schools there as well. And we've shared some uh, distance programming between our, our two facilities as we struggled to find ways to uh, keep children entertained during this uh, pandemic crisis which I didn't really want to mention at this point in time. Pandemic, what pandemic? Hopefully by the time you hear this, uh, some of us will have a shot in the arm or be looking forward to one. So the idea of doing a Vigilante podcast came to me, I think, around 2015. I started a Facebook page, not as a podcast, uh, but just as a collection to you know, do screen grabs of art and things like that. Some of you may have seen it. It wasn't well promoted or anything like that. It was just called simply The Vigilante. And if you do know of that page, well, that page is now officially this podcast's Facebook page. I just changed the name and I'm going to carry on. And that'll be my place to post. And hopefully that uh, that site that has sat there for about five years has grown. Uh, in that intervening time, um, I've learned a lot about podcasting. As I said, started my own in 2019 with the museum. I, I've just had too much on the go to want to spend too much time. Now, thanks again to COVID. Last time I'm going to say that, I'm in here in the Christmas season of 2020, and I'm not looking forward to go to, to back to my museum, probably till the middle of January, because our province, like many states and many regions around the world, is now on complete lockdown, and that includes museums which are forbidden to open. So therefore, I have a nice long Christmas break to hopefully get... Uh, the first ep this first episode out and online and maybe uh, get some preliminary work done on a few others as well. And so I'm really looking forward to this. So here's how it's going to work. I'm just speaking extra temporaneously, um, working without a net here. In the future, what I want to do is try to keep these episodes very, very short. Uh, there, we're only dealing with eight to 10 pages here because I'm starting with the 1940s. And I really want to work through all of the Golden Age tales as well. I've recently gotten access and links to all of them. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. As, as I've said before, we don't have much to do with Vigilante through the 50s and 60s. He comes on like gangbusters again in the 1970s and unfortunately fades in the background as Crisis settles him into being a solitary character and... As we speak of now in comics, unless you're Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, or some enduring character like that that has had an unbroken string, unfortunately, the Golden Age characters just seem to patronizingly get set to the back. And uh, But you know what? That's, that's fine. We can all memorize that. I've come to the realization, um, as I reach certain plateaus in my life, you know, comics may not be for me anymore, and that's not an insult uh, to DC or anything, not to knock, shade them down. They have to realize that they have to re remain relevant to a broad population, and they just can't do comics 
for nothing but, you know, 40, 50, and 60-year-olds anymore that want to relive their, their dreams. I have my old comics. I can go back there and look at them at any time. And, of course, thanks to things like Comixology and many other resources, we can look at that. I don't know if I'd want to see what they would want to, what, what any creator would do with the vigilante here in the 2000s. Um, he might not just fit. He might just be seen as hokey or violent or, you know, he uses guns or, oh, good God, he's a red stater, something like that. You know what? I prefer to think about vigilante as that cowboy from the 40s. So what I'm going to do now, I'm going to just head straight into our read of Action Comics 42, The Origin of the Vigilante. And then we'll talk briefly with some notes after that. And I hope you like how I do this. It's an experiment, but I'm looking to do it in 1940 style as a radio play. Today we're looking at Action Comics number 42. You're going to your newsstand with one thin dime in your hand and you've got one comic in mind, and that's Action Comics number 42. Because if you have, of course, have heard... That Superman is on the cover, as he has been for over three years at this point in time, debuting, of course, in Action Comics number one. Action Comics, as we've said, is 10 cents for 64 pages. What a value. And in our second feature, we have our new character, Origin of the Vigilante. Your writer is Mort Weisinger, and your artist is Mort Meskin. Now, this tale... Uh, from the origin of the vigilante has been reprinted a couple of times it has been reprinted in secret origins number four which was a reprint title uh, edited by nelson bridwell in the 1970s that's where i first saw this story and that was published in 1973 and it has also been recently published in 2018 uh, collected in action comics 1000 uh, at least the deluxe edition, which is, uh, of course, the uh, edition commemorating the uh, first uh, peri comics periodical to reach that number of 1,000. And I should add uh, that Chag and Rob also reviewed this, uh, this origin as part of the uh, Secret Origins Redux podcast that uh, they hold, hold over the fire and water on September 13th, 2020. So I just wanted to give that shout out there. Now, the origin of the vigilante. From across the western plains and into the streamlined east flashes a mystery writer, symbolic of the spirit of frontier America, the vigilante. Heroic champion of law and order, who battles 20th century criminals with weapons of the range in a ceaseless one-man stampede against all lawlessness. Follow the victory trail of the vigilante as he rounds up public enemy number one with smoking six guns and twirling lariat. The full yellow moon dawns above the gray walls of state prison, a citadel of crime behind whose grim locked gates are harbored the nation's most notorious outlaws. Inside the death house, a tense band of reporters and law officials 
sit in the galleries awaiting the execution of Killer Kelly, public enemy number one. I'll be glad when this is over. Me too. I hate these assignments. But one man, the vigilante, smiles grimly, aware of the fact that he has finally brought a ruthless desperado to justice. It's about time society caught up with Killer Kelly. Two guards usher the swaggering, arrogant killer into the death house. Hello, boys. Don't forget to spell my name right. So it's you. Come to see me die. Well, let me tell you something, vigilante. They can't kill Killer Kelly. I'm coming back from the grave, and I'll get you. The law exacts its toll. I pronounce this man dead. That's strange about Kelly, boasting that he'd come after me from the grave. I wonder what he meant. Inside the death house, like a phoenix risen from the ashes of its pyre, Killer Kelly comes to life. That was a swell job, Doc. Fixing the juice that only 200 volts went through me. That shock didn't even bother me. I'll tell the papers your body was cremated, and then no one will ever be the wiser. I never would have helped you, but I was afraid of what you'd do to my wife and children. The whole world believes I'm dead. I can get away with anything from now on. And one guy I aim to remember is the vigilante. A few nights later, a gang of desperate criminals led by Killer Kelly, cracked down on Preston City's leading bank. Here are some slugs I'd like to deposit. And as swiftly as they appeared, the grim ghouls of gangdom fade into the night. A cool hundred grand. Not bad for a dead guy. The next day, at a rodeo, Greg Saunders, famous radio star, Known as the Prairie Troubadour, poses for publicity pictures. How's this pose, fellows? Here, Mr. Saunders, hold this lariat in your hand. All your fans will think you're a rootin' tootin' cowboy. This publicity helps. The next thing I know, you fellows will want me to ride a bucking bronc. Why must you build me up as a hero of the range? The public is hungry for glamour, Mr. Saunders. Maybe we can make you as popular as the vigilante. Suddenly, a steer is loose. That boy will be killed. Mike Saunders goes into lightning action using the lariat given him by the photographer. This always worked in the movies. The boy is saved by Saunders' quick thinking, and the crowd goes wild. It was just a lucky shot, folks. That evening... After Greg Saunders ends his broadcast, he meets Betty Stewart, blues singer. Hello, Betty. Hello, Greg. You're a hero. Have you seen the papers? How did you ever do it? But Greg Saunders has eyes for a news story other than the report of his own feet. What's this? Killer Kelly's fingerprints found on safe of rated bank. I'll have to be going, Betty. See you soon. If only he weren't such a phony. I could care a lot for him. 
but I'll bet he's never been out of this state. At his home, Saunders sheds the raiment of the dude cowboy and dons the colorful western garb of the vigilante. It's incredible. I saw Kelly die with my own eyes, yet he, or his ghost, is still on a crusade of crime. And he might figure on going after the jewels at Van Ardsley's ball tonight. Who is this vigilante? Gun-fighting Ranny of the Range who has ridden out of the West to battle outlaws of the metropolis with smoking six guns and twirling lariat? Born in Wyoming, Greg Saunders inherited his sterling qualities of his grandfather, Indian fighter and stalwart frontiersman. That's well kept off the man, Sidewinder. The son of a fearless county sheriff, young Greg Saunders learned the law of the range to bring to justice those engaged in corrupt practices. Put him up, you rustling coyote. Years later, his father killed by a band of stagecoach bandits, Greg Saunders vows to follow his family tradition and uses, his heritage to become the vigilante, nemesis of all crime from border to border. His golden voice and his songs of sage bring him fame as the prairie troubadour. Isn't he wonderful? Time, the present and the vigilante hurries to the Van Ardsley's ball. What an original idea. That man coming to the ball disguised as the vigilante. Clever costume, that. They think I'm impersonating the vigilante, just as I'd hoped. Killer Kelly and his band arrive. We'll show them we're really pirates. This is a stick up, everybody. Throw all your jewels on the floor. Ha! Don't you wish you were really the vigilante? But maybe he is the vigilante. Oh, a double hitter. Killer Kelly suddenly dashes to the rear, hides behind the figure of Betty Stewart. Good grief, that's Betty. Can't risk trying to nap Kelly now. Shielded by the girl, Killer Kelly makes his escape. Here's where we part company, sister. And thanks for the cooperation. You beast. Outside, the vigilante commandeers a taxi and gives chase to the fugitive outlaw. Follow that car. Get him, vigilante. The crowd driver presses down on the accelerator and presently... Just like bulldog in a steer. Yeah, but it's a bum steer for you. You forgot I still had this. Knocked unconscious by the unexpected blow, the vigilante comes to discover himself bound and a captive of the murderous criminal. Sure I'm alive, vigilante. The prison doctor fixed the chair so that only a few volts went through me. He pretended to pronounce me dead. Otherwise, my men would have killed his wife and children. You'll pay for your crimes someday, Kelly. I'll die first, vigilante. By gas. As soon as I shut the door, gas will seep in. The door clangs shut, and the lethal vapors hiss in through the nozzle in the ceiling. A bucket of water over there. Lucky for me that Kelly tied me up with leather thongs. The vigilante immerses his bound hands in a bucket of water. It's lucky Kelly didn't know something every westerner knows. That rawhide stretches when wet. 
A few moments later, the drenched thong stretch and the vigilante's hands are free. That gas, <coughs> I have to work fast before it gets me. Standing on tiptoes, the vigilante holds a flaming match to the gas nozzle. This is my only chance to beat that murder in Sidewinder. Just as I thought, the gas is now burning like a gas pipe. Well, Kelly be surprised to see me alive. Presently, one of the killer's men returns to inspect his master's handiwork. The vigilante never thought he'd go the way of the range. The gas range. Stampede, you coyote! Suddenly, the phone rings. Yeah, he's dead all right, boss. Good slots. Meet us at South and Fifth. We're cracking a safe at the office of J.R. Rockridge. The vigilante races to the offices of J.R. Rockridge for a final showdown with Killer Kelly. Don't have to climb stairs when I have spurs. Digging spurs into a telephone pole, the vigilante climbs to the level of the third story. Now to try the old rope trick. The vigilante makes his way to the scene of the crime, oblivious to the yawning depths below. Good thing I'm used to wide open spaces. The vigilante! Let's beat it! Keller Kelly falls victim to the twirling lariat of the range lawman. Round and round and round you go. Yeah. He threw the boss out the window. And we're next. The fall of the crooks is broken by a telephone wire. Shut up, rats. Hey, quit shoving. I guess that's what they call a party line. And now to tell the police that they can take their fish off the line. His task successfully completed, the vigilante returns once more to his role of the Prairie Troubadour. May I help you autograph, Mr. Saunders? I reckon so. Just a drugstore cowboy. Why can't he be like the vigilante? Next month, a thrilling 13-page vigilante adventure. Well, I don't know about you, but that narrator just about wore me out. So I think I'm going to take a break and steal a trick from Stella of Batgirl to Oracle. And we're going to have right now Greg Saunders Radio Theater. And he's going. To, we're going to play Mr. Gene Autry, who in our radio play or that you just heard, played the role of Greg Saunders. I think he did a fine job. And now Mr. Autry's rendition of a Western classic that we all know. And as Coach says on Cheers, you can't possibly stay mad at someone when you sing Home in the Range with them. Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam, where the deer and the antelope Seldom is heard a discouraging word, and the skies are not cloudy all day. 
when the heavens are bright with the light from the glittering stars have i stood there amazed and asked as i gaze if their glory exceeds that of ours On the Range by Gene Autry, written by Dr. Brewster M. Hangley of Smith County, Kansas in 1874. Actually, a homesteader's song, a farmer's song. And if you didn't know, it's the state song of the great state of Kansas. And of course, over the years, has been uh, become a cowboy song and recorded several, several times. A folklorist named John Lomax found the song, said he learned it from a a former black cowboy that ran a saloon in Kansas. Interestingly, first recorded in 1933 by Bing Crosby and again in 1942. And of course picked up several times over the years, including by the estimable Mr. Autry. And of course there's no doubt in my mind that as Mort Weisinger invented the vigilante and Greg's, the identity of Greg Saunders, the prairie troubadour, that he would have had Gene Autry in mind. Him being the star not only of recordings, but also of uh, motion pictures and about a million Republic serials. And now a few thoughts and notes on the story that we've just heard, the origin of the vigilante. And uh, I think I need to get this out right at the beginning. Most of the vigilante's stories do have a title. This one as the origin of the vigilante isn't its actual title within the comic itself or on the splash page. It just seems to be the title that has come down to this story over the years, and that is how it's listed on uh, Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. So just have to have that out there right now. That's not the official title, but as it has none, I guess it is now. Now, we open up here. On uh, the splash page, page just shows Mort Meskin at his best and really illustrating what the vigilante can do. Now, this is, of course, the first time we see Vig um, when we open this comic. Uh, he's wearing a dark blue or navy shirt that has a cavalry bib front. This is sort of a style you would see on... Um, in a military horseman of the time. 
I have one of these myself. My wife has made it. Actually, I have three of them now that I think about it. She's made them for me as well. Um, I have a blue one, and I also have a kind of a formal calico one that I wear for public appearances when I'm doing my history talks and such. Uh, he's also wearing white jeans. Now, I don't believe that the colorist meant for this to be white. I think it's supposed to be a faded, faded blue as denim jeans tend to get as they're worn and washed several times over. And uh, as we go along here with uh, with Vidges over the years, we will see these in various colors. They'll be dark blue, they'll be white again, they'll be light blue. Interestingly enough, when we got into Justice League uh, Unlimited in the 2000s, and of course the action figure that they made for it, he's back into white pants. And uh, it, that just makes no sense to me. Um, if this is supposed to be working clothes of a cowboy, well, you can just imagine how dirty, how uh, how white those would be after a few days in the saddle. Um, he's wearing um, what you would call, I call riding boots. Other people call kiting, cowboy boots, complete with spurs, because why not? Good offensive weapon if you're going to be a crime fighter. And he's wearing that red neckerchief over top of his nose and that will be his look oh and of course the hat and the hat will vary over times from white to tan and back to white and I think Gray Morrow will actually color it as a black as a brown hat in the 1970s I personally like the idea of a tan or a brown hat myself I just feel white for the same reasons as the pants it's just going to get dirty but it does give a sleek look I know Chris Franklin has said he likes the uh, the white hat just because it reminds him of the Lone Ranger, and fair enough. He's also wearing his six guns, and he's got an interesting uh, arrangement here on his for his gun belts. Normally, you would think if you're going to have a uh, pack two two six guns or six shooters, revolvers, as I'd rather say, uh, you would have a single belt with. Uh, cartridge placements and two holsters. He actually is wearing two single holster rigs and I guess the idea of that is it uh, uh, perhaps it weighs, it, it feels a little bit better, maybe the weight of the uh, revolvers run straight, maybe you can keep the belts a lot tighter. I'm not certain what his uh, what his reasoning is, it's just probably a personal preference that Greg Sanders has. And it would also, of course, give him more ammunition. Now, interestingly, he is never going to draw his gun in this story. We're never going to see him use the gun. So what's he going to be using? He's going to be using that lariat. And you probably got tired of my sound effect on that. There you go. There's it is again. And in this, he's uh, holding a man. Uh, pretty much pulled him right off the desk in midair as a couple of mobsters are are shooting him. And uh, it's just a very great action shot. And you look at it, things are happening. There's bullets flying, hats are flying off, there's papers being strewn. Uh, there's one guy has hit, even hit his foot on the desk and he's got a big wham on there. So that's just a very, very interesting picture. And this... Uh, this splash is used often to represent Vigilante, and I can see why. Now, interestingly enough, even though this is the first story here, you know, we're seeing it in September of 1941. You know, so somebody's working on it in uh, the summer of 1941, obviously. But uh, 
vigilante is already well known enough to be invited to attend the execution of well, one of the criminals that he has rounded up, which of course is Killer Kelly. So in some ways, um, we have bypassed the origin of the vigilante in this, and, and we'll, we'll see that what that is a little bit later on, such as it is. But vigilante is already, you know, mid-career. He's known, people know who he is, and even though he's walking around with a mask on his face, law officials and, and state officials seem to trust him enough to have him uh, attend the execution of somebody that he, let's say, quote, arrested, unquote, even though if his name is Vigilante, can he really arrest people? But obviously he has captured Killer Kelly. Kelly's a bizarre-looking dude. He sort of got this friar tuck skirt around his, of, of hair around his head. I like this panel of the execution, not just that I like executions, just that it's no holds barred here. This is 1940s comics. I'm not sure you'd see this postcode, but it's very, very interesting. Uh, in the early 1940s, you could give criminals the chair, you could shoot them, you, the human torch could burn them. You know, there seem to be no holds barred in some of these comics. And, and the colors seem to be muddy enough to really fit the mood. I think that's what I like about Golden Age comics. Now we get into uh, page three here and we see Greg Saunders dude it up. And this is sort of interesting. This is where we kind of get our Clark Kent moment. You know, Vigilante has two identities. Both are cowboys. One, of course, is this cost, this uh, superheroic type crime fighter. And the other is this singer who's all kind of sort of dressed up in this dandified outfit. And it's not really, you know, a Roy Rogers style with a lot of sequins, but he's got a very high, exaggerated Montana peak hat, which most cowboys you wouldn't really see wear outside of maybe a, a fancy ball or something like that. And he's wearing huge, exaggerated chaps, and he's probably wearing the same bandana, but, but a different shirt. It's more of a pocketed shirt. And uh, I guess the idea of this is Greg Saunders is the prairie troubadour. He's, he's sort of giving off the impression to the photographer that he's not a real cowboy. This will come up here as uh, when we meet Betty Stewart. But he seems to have some skills because a steer gets loose. And Greg Saunders managed to rope it and throw it to the ground. Now, I know a little bit about steers. I've raised a few. I've brought a few calves into this world and I've raised them up to their... Well, I have to say the word butcher's weight, and usually they're about 1,000 to 1,200 pounds by the time they get to that weight, and this this animal definitely has to be at that point. I wouldn't want to be in front of this the, or this boy in front of here because this animal's got horns, and there's a thing about an animal bovine with horns. It knows it has them, so it's got some attitude, and Greg manages to throw Lariat around it, even though he's throwing off these, this role of the dude. He's rising to the emergency and managing to uh, at least drag its hind feet to the ground. And that's interesting because um, what he's going to do after that is, is with that animal. Well, I hope somebody else comes along and assists because we know Greg's a superhero here, but I don't think he has the Kryptonian strength to hold that animal to the ground. And, of course, Greg shuffles it off by saying, it's just a lucky shot, folks. So he's playing into this Clark Kent sort of arrangement. And in the next panel, we see Greg uh, meet up with a very comely lass by the name of Betty Stewart, who it says is a blues singer. 
a red-haired, white blues singer in 1941. Going to have to do some research to see if that existed. When you tell me about a female blues singer in 1941, I'm thinking of Billie Holiday. I'm thinking of Lena Horne. Well, it could have happened. Perhaps K-Star, Doris Day or such. Um, although you don't really think of them as blues singers, just more popular big band singers. Well, we won't really get to know Betty that well. She'll be here for a few issues. And she's going to try to play the Lois Lane here. Uh, although she doesn't really think much of Greg, but she sure likes the vigilante. So we have that, uh, that same trope of the female love interest that may or may not know what uh, the alter ego is all about. She doesn't think too much about him. Um, she doesn't think he's even been out of this state, whatever this state is. We, re we really don't even know wh what city we're in at, some, at this point. It's really interesting to look at Meskin's art here where Betty Stewart is coming down off the steps. Uh, Greg is walking by a fire plug. When Greg's looking at the newspaper, there isn't just lines on there. There's actual headlines that says, Greg Saunders hero, and another line that says, Killer Kelly. And of course, those two stories figure within the within the context of, uh, of our story here. There's a, a fire hydrant here. There's a bucket with a bottle in it. There's trash strewn around. I mean, it's just very interesting how Meskin really fills in the small details. We see Greg's home, and all we really see of Greg's home, of course, is a chair and a lamp and a table with uh, something on it, and then some papers strewn about again. And it's just really interesting that Greg never really sits straight. He's always got a leg cocked off one way, one leg bent the other way. I mean, Meskin's figures have fluid. Now, middle of the four pages, we finally relent to four panels that will probably give us the biggest hints as to Greg's origin for a very long time, or possibly ever. This is the base of who he is. Five panels, actually. Pardon me. And uh, again, Meskin, on one panel where he goes, who oh, is this vigilante? Well, underneath there's sort of a a negative tone, a negative space vision of a of a six shooter underneath, complete with smoke. Here, I mean, to to mix my metaphors or to use the appropriate metaphor, perhaps, Meskin is firing on all six cylinders in this story, at least for his where his art is at this point in time in his life. I mean, he's just not holding back. But then we come to panel six and. This is very unfortunate because it's showing up. We, we, this is where we first learned that Greg is born in Wyoming, the great state of Wyoming. I only live two states away from Wyoming myself, so uh, I'm out west. And we see Greg Saunders's unnamed grandfather, who is, quote, an Indian fighter and stalwart frontiersman, unquote. And the next I'll keep going here. The next scene we see a pile of two First Nations men and another First Nations man complete with a breech cloak coming after him. And he's firing him and he's yelling about getting you thieving sidewinders. That really, Pop Grandpa Saunders is having some issues with some First Nations people. And uh, I guess the problem here I see is, you know, it's from a sensitivity level. If you were reading this in the 1940s, you would probably just skip on by it. But I have to say something. It's just offensive as all hell, get out. 
in 2020. First of all, I don't know what the context here of Grandpa Saunders is. It just says he's a frontiersman. Well, what does that mean? Is he a trapper? Is he a prospector? Is he a rancher? We just don't know. His apparel just sort of gives us off. He's just wearing a a white shirt and um, blue pants of some kind, either corduroy or denim, and and uh, big handlebar mustache. And I guess we're supposed to get the idea that, uh, you know, he has come west and uh, he's not going to let anybody get in his way, even if it's uh, indigenous people who live there. Now, the biggest problem I always have is just the rendering of this, and I know I've been waxing Mr. Meskin's car here through this, but I have to take him to task. I think, I don't think Mort, like Greg Saunders, had ever been west of New York himself at that time, and probably neither had Mr. Weisinger, uh, or they wouldn't have written this the, or depicted this panel in this fashion. Uh, we have mohawk haircuts, we have breech clouts, everybody is practically stripped naked, and I'm sorry, when you're in the West, we're talking the land of Arapaho, Cheyenne, possibly Sioux or Blackfoot if they were that far south into the Yellowstone area, or who knows, it could be Shoshone. I mean, I, I can list off another half a dozen, but I'm just trying to give an idea of what you would probably find in Wyoming for indigenous peoples, and they don't look like this. Um, Mort probably just picked up a copy of, uh, you know, something like James Fenimore Cooper's Last of the Mohicans and just wrote what he th drew, drew what he th saw in his mind as being First Nations. Now, we don't dwell on this, this panel. Um, could you call it racist? A lot of people would, and I think you probably should. It really is. It doesn't give us any context as to what is going on, where they are, why we're in this fight, and do we really need this at all? I'll say I'll go away from the racist line and just say it's bloody thoughtless, and I'll leave it at that. Now we go into Greg here when he's it looks like he's uh, probably in the teenage era here, so this would probably put him sometime in the if. In the late 1920s, if you said Greg was born a little after World War One, this would probably put him somewhere in, uh, I guess you'd have to put a little later into the 1930s or so, if he is uh, helping his father out on the trail, helping to round things up, uh, round up thieves. And in this case, we seem to have either horse or cattle rustlers. Oh, nope, there's a cow. So I guess we're looking at cattle rustlers. And cattle rustlers did still exist into the 1920s on the prairies. And I'm sorry, I can remember them existing in southern Alberta here, right into the 1990s. So it's always been a problem. Uh, the idea of cattle is uh, its a fairly liquid thing. You can always get rid of them. And if you can't, uh, can't sell them, if, they're hot, if the beef is hot, well, you just wrap it up and and sell the beef itself and since it's basically purloin sirloin anything you get from that point in time as a rustler is profits and this Greg seems to learn early about being a lawman so perhaps he's been deputized by his father uh, the sheriff who isn't named here but we do learn later years his name is Tom Saunders and the most unfortunate thing I always find here and we don't never see this a lot in comics 
We just don't know who Mrs. Saunders is at this point in time. And we end this so-called origin with uh, Greg Saunders in a recording studio or a broadcast studio, complete with groupies. So he must be talented and he must be handsome. And he's warbling out the home on the range just the way we heard it. And here we have Vigilani playing himself at the Masquerade Ball. And this is one of the great tropes of both the origins and of the 1940s and even into the 1960s in the Batgirl origin. The masquerade party where people are always dressed up as, uh, you know, here we have pirates, we have people in various kinds of musketeers, that kind of a thing. And of course, Killer Kelly shows up in his pirate garb as well. And this is where Greg Saunders can walk around as the vigilante. And people think that he's just part of the crowd. At the end here, we get Betty Stewart, gets to play the Lois Lane role, becomes the, the hostage. But, in fact, fights back. Just think of this. This is only about the sixth panel we've seen Betty in. And she's already whacking Killer Kelly on the noggin. She's not going to go down as the damsel in distress. And good for her. And we get a more Mexican action on page six. We have a car chase that actually looks like a car chase. We have speed lines and smoke. And uh, Killer Kelly at the wheel as Vigilante tries to jump in from another car. From a taxi, actually. And uh, he takes a whack in the noggin uh, with the back of the hilt of Killer Kelly's pirate sword. And this is something we're going to have to get used to in the Golden Age. And this happens a lot to Vigilante and his and to his allies. They take concussions and wake up into death traps. Shades of the Batman 66 TV show. And it's an interesting trap that Kelly has put him in. Basically, we have a broken gas, gas pipe inside this room. I don't know what... Perhaps there's some symbolism. You were going to execute me with electricity, Vigilante? So thinks Killer Kelly, well, I'm going to hit you with gas. And, of course, there's the old trope. You see this a lot in comics. The rawhide stretches when he, uh, fortunately, there was a bu bucket of water kicking around. Because the villain always leaves the room after he set the trap, right? He never sticks around. Well, I guess there's natural gas going, so why do that? Well, the uh, rawhide does, in fact, stretch. The leather stretches, and he's able to get loose. Well... Good thing you didn't use sisal rope, because that would have just gotten wet and soggy and, and probably tighter. And then uh, I like what Vidge does do. He jumps up, and uh, he must have a match in his pocket. He realizes that uh, this gas will be harmless if he can turn what is going on. So this gas must, must not be a, just a broken jet. I think it must be some sort of a heater or some kind of an arrangement, because when he lights the match... It just kind of sort of turns into a Bunsen burner. And I wouldn't want to be in this room if there's been a lot of loose gas around, but naturally probably the loose gas would just be attracted by the flame. So Vidge has worked fast, and he hasn't been in that room very, very long. And I do like his goon's idea. I think the goon's name is Slats. And he says they never thought he'd go with the range, the gas range. Ah, puns. Love him. And then Vidge... Uh, comes in there and he the phone rings and Vidge imitates Slats after he's knocked him on the floor and uh, which causes Killer Kelly on the other end to basically just blurt out his entire plan that he's going to crack the safe at G.R. Rockrich 
Well, I'm glad it's J.R. Rockrich and not that J.R. Rockefeller guy. J.R. Mr. Rockefeller might have more goons around, so Rockrich must not play quite as safe. And Vidge seems to know where the Rockrich office is because he runs over there, no car or anything. And uh, boy, kids, don't try this at home. He climbs a telephone pole. If you don't know what a telephone pole is, at one time wires used to stretch from pole to pole to pole on a mast sort of arrangement, and that was how your telephone network arrived. 80 years before we have cell phones, folks. Uh, maybe 60 years, but this, this is uh, basically how landlines worked. When he climbs this pole... Instead of using uh, a climbing spur, he uses his boot spurs. And he uses the rowels, that's the, that's the little star, the jingle bob thing on the back end of his spurs. And he uses this to climb the, the pole. Well, boy, this is much, must be much, much tougher spurs than I have ever worn in my life. Because I think if I ever tried that, they'd be bent and I'd be all over the ground. I have seen climbing spurs. Climbing spurs are strapped to your boots and they have about a 12-inch spike that you put into the pole to climb up. And you're just not going to do it with cowboy spurs, I'm sorry. And uh, when he gets to the top, he swings that lariat of his. We still haven't used a gun yet. And he drops on what has to be in every building in comics is a gargoyle. Otherwise, you just, you just have bare ledge to tread a rope. But thank God there's a gargoyle. And thank God that gargoyle isn't old enough to crack as soon as he puts weight on it. But he's not going to be on there very long because he's going to swing into a window through the Venetian blinds. And Meskin even draws the slats on the Venetian blind. He draws the drawers on the filing cabinets. And there's just stuff is flying around. Now, this is action. And Vidge just pulls out that lariat. He's a heck of a roper. He could pull out those six guns and probably bonk everybody, but he's got other things in mind. He's just come up that telephone pole, throws Killer Kelly out the out the window, and then he throws his goons out the window. They know what's going to happen, and they land right on top of the telephone wires. All I can say is good thing it wasn't a hydroelectrical wires. And then Vidge makes a great pun. I guess that's why they call a party line. If you don't know what a party line is, it's... Uh, Basically, you have two or three neighbors that are sharing the same phone line. So if they pick up their set, you pick up your phone set and they're talking, you can hear their entire conversation. It's just like an extension phone. I know all about this because in rural areas, we had party lines right up until sometime into the 1980s. And then we end with uh, Vigil Vig is back in his Greg Sanders getup and he's uh, got the groupies around him again. And they're all asking for his autograph, but Betty Stewart is not impressed. He goes, just a drugstore cowboy. I used to hear that a lot in my neck of the woods. Drugstore cowboy, it basically comes from the term of somebody who has read too many novels that they bought at the drugstore. For kids, if you've never uh, gone into a drugstore and seen a rack of paperback books, I don't think they do that much anymore. You'd go in there, and probably about 50% of them would be Westerns. And Betty's just alluding to that, that uh, she figures that Greg Saunders has basically learned all his whole cowboy routine 
out of one of the Western books or that culture. And when she says he's never been out of this state, then we must be thinking that we're in an Eastern state of some time, some point. Um, we don't know what our city is called and we don't know exactly where we are in this story, but it could be just about any city. Uh, it's probably standing in for New York City uh, just because of the recording industry. And it's my, it's my understanding that a lot of, of the singing cowboys got their start by first going to New York City, no matter where they came from. They'd cut some records, and then when they got popular, the records got popular, they'd be out to Hollywood. And that's where they would start to build their career as film stars. And of course, we end it next month. We're going to get a 13-page vigilante adventure. Now that shocks me, because I've been through most of the uh, the run of vigilante in action comics, and I've never seen anything past 10 pages. Most are eight page. So I don't quite recall if this is 13 pages in that we're going to see in action comics 43. So I guess we're just going to have to wait till the next podcast. Well, buckaroos and buckarets, this is about where I'm going to hang up my gear for this, the very first podcast of Prairie Justice, a Greg Saunders vigilante podcast. I think we've gone a little long, so I think this is probably a good place to just end it. I'm just going to say right now, as I post this, it's uh, coming on to the, oh, the last week before Christmas. So, uh, despite the kind of year it's been, I like want to wish everybody uh the best and safest holidays we can and I hope that we all will get through this and we'll all see each other on the other side and at any rate you will see me for episode two and when we'll talk discuss action comics number 43 and of course another adventure of Greg Saunters the vigilante In the corner of a dark bar room Said a little cowboy singing western tune Singing songs that he learned as a child All about the west back when it was wild well, So long partners, you've been listening to Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast all materials used in Prairie Justice are believed to be of fair use and remain the copyright of all copyright holders. Stories, images, and the character of Greg Saunders, the Vigilante, and all other characters used are the property of DC Comics and DC Entertainment. Feedback for Prairie Justice can be left on Facebook under the name Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. Email go to vigilantecast at gmail.com website is www.rangergordsroundup all one word at dot wordpress.com and we sure hope to see you all back again for another ride with the cowboy crusader via con dios compadres eh cause he's the last of the sea.